0: This podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com.
1: Welcome so as Gary reminded us this morning during his keynote you are all artists with sound and uh, for the next hour we're going to talk about uh, how you find your inspiration and uh, how your out of the box thinking drives storytelling and uh, how you do that to create a better product for the filmmakers and the director so um this morning Gary also commented that this panel is among the best of the best and I'm very pl- proud to introduce them. Uh, sitting next to me is Will Files, whose credits include Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, The Force Awakening, and the upcoming Passengers. <clears throat> is seated next to him is Mark Ste- Steckender, um, whose credits include Prometheus, Unstoppable, Star Trek, and upcoming Jack Reacher. Uh, Benjamin Cook, uh Deadwood, The Pacific, Apocalypto, and Black Sails. And we have Paula Fairfield, whose credits include Game of Thrones, Hands of Stone, Lost, and The Strain. And I also would like to wish her a very happy birthday. She's joining us on her birthday today. <laughs> Seated next to her is Harry Cohn, whose credits include The Hateful Eight, Warcraft Divergent and the upcoming Deepwater Horizon. And Paul Menachini, whose credits include 24 Lost and the Cinematics for Blizzard Entertainment's World of Warcraft's Overwatch and many others. So uh, the panel voted that Will would get to go first. Because <laughs> <So,
2: laughs> I was the latest to get here.
1: <laughs> so um, so Will, when, when you approach one of your projects, uh, how do you start? What sort of research to you? Where do you search for inspiration? Uh,
2: well, in the material itself. I mean, um, I think the first thing I try to figure out about a film is what's the, what's the feel that the director is trying to, create what's the vibe i think that's what sound does so well is create uh, a feeling you know create emotion create atmosphere um and and you're trying to at least i I always try to channel the director's aesthetic through my own work uh because i feel like that's not only the best way to make the client happy but also to it's the best way to make a cohesive piece of art which you know hopefully the film will be Uh, so I try to really, you know, if it's either in the script phase or watching a rough cut or just talking with the director about it, try to feel out, you know, what kind of film are they trying to make? How do they want it to feel? Um, I think it's actually surprisingly easy to get that wrong. Uh, so, and I've certainly, you know, made that mistake plenty of times myself, where I've tried to bring my own idea to something that doesn't stick to what they've already created or are trying to create. Um, So, actually, it seems so lame to say it, but I draw a lot of my inspiration from the director and their vision and trying to tease out even more of what they're trying to create on the screen.
1: Um, Why don't we pick one of your recent projects and maybe give an example of how it came together?
2: Um, So, I just finished uh, recently a film called Loving, uh, which is uh, directed by Jeff Nichols, who I've made a lot of films with. Um, and it's a film set in the 50s and 60s. It's a civil rights drama uh, coming out in November, and it's by far the simplest soundtrack we've ever done together, Um, and it was one of those movies where actually I, I feel like I got it wrong to begin with because I was approaching it like the other films that we've made together. I was trying to put too much sound into it, and I was ignoring the fact that he had made this film that was very, very simplified. It was very reserved, and the performances are all very subtle, and I, I had brought too much to the, to the table in terms of you know, what we had prepped for the mix. And it became clear to me after we did our first playback that it had to get scaled way back, and to the point of there's scenes that play practically in mono, and it, and it was sort of a reminder of like, the, you know, this is important too. The, a, good, a good sound mix doesn't have to be whiz-bang. It doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be, you know, immersive to be immersive. You know what I mean? It's like by by making the audience lean into the film and, and feel the intimacy of the filmmaking, you know, the sound was equally important in preserving that feel that he was trying to create. Um, and then because the film was set in the South, uh, in the 50s and 60s, growing up in the South, the, the South doesn't move very fast. Uh, so a lot of the places and people and, and things, even just like the, you know, the way the grocery stores looked and, you know, the things like, that's kind of how I remember it as a kid. And so I was able to draw on my own experience with those things. and And the way it felt, you know, you're almost trying to create that feeling with sound of what it feels like to be there. You know, does it feel hot? Does it feel damp? Does it feel, you know, oppressive? You know, however it is. Uh, and so I was trying to bring my own. I think I was more successful in that front of bringing my experience in the South to the film as well.
1: In in this example, it's great that you had you know your own personal experiences to draw from when you're working on a project for, in an area that you might. Not no, personally. Um, ha- how do you research it? What What do you? YouTube. What is a part of your process?
2: <laughs> I spend a lot of time on YouTube. It's it's a it's a really great resource. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Doug Murray is sitting right there in the middle. Uh, my co supervisor on the Planet of the Apes films, and it, it was totally invaluable for us to have YouTube available when we were researching. You know, what do baby chimps sound like? What do, you know, angry orangutans sound like? You know, you, you go through all these things that like. 20 years ago would have taken so much time to, to investigate. I mean, we actually, we did a film uh, called Cloverfield years ago that was right around the sort of dawn of online video. And, you know, if, if we would have had more access to, you know, real like footage of, you know, unfortunately bombings and things like that, I mean, that was the aesthetic we were trying to create. And, that is all out there to be listened to and explored uh, on the web. And so uh, it's incredibly useful. We even went so far as to track down some of the people that had made these videos and license sounds from them to use in the movie and get the originals. So it, it's an incredibly useful way to research a film.
1: Okay. Mark, what about you? Do you also rely on YouTube?
3: YouTube is the best. Just the. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I grew up with what was it, the Encyclopedia Britannica? Forget yeah. about it. It's all about YouTube. So, yeah, to- totally concur. Okay.
1: Now, uh, for to use an example, Prometheus, um, uh, you can't research. You can't world, research
3: so. the future very well. But, but uh, if you wh- could. <laughs> where, where,
1: where did your inspiration come from for a film like that to create the soundscape?
3: Well, for me, that was even a little bit more personal because when I decided I want to work in the film business, it was after seeing alien. And since that film not only related to alien in many ways, um, and had the same director, I was in, um, sound hog heaven. So, um, you know, sort of the research was understanding what the current film is and maybe where it came from. So you can pay homage to certain things and frankly even use some of the sounds from the original film to, you know, certain alarms and computer sounds and actually try to make it a little bit old tech. Um, so that was great. So it, it really sort of bookended in, in uh, an aspect of um, something that was really important to me.
1: How, how do you find that old tech sound?
3: How do I find, am sorry.
1: Or is that YouTube also? <laughs>
3: No, it was watching the film, Um, I was able to speak to Ray Marins, who mixed the original film and just get some ideas from what they did. And um, I forgot the name of the editor, but Terry Rollins, the original editor. So fortuitously, I happened to be in London to meet on the film, and I was able to arrange a meeting with those guys and have lots of drinks with those guys because that's what they're like in that time period. Anyway. Alcohol's the other yeah, tool. Yeah, right? alcohol's another tool. Yeah, it's another research tool.
1: YouTube and alcohol. Yeah.
3: <laughs> if you learn one thing today. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Everybody's got their stash somewhere. Um, but nonetheless, there was inspiration as far as how they used music and some of the things that they wanted to create in the uh, in the tension of the drama of that particular film. Um, And then specifically with Prometheus, you look at it and go, well, you know, it's it's in the future, but it relates to the beginning of man and the beginning of man theoretically is this language of Sanskrit. So um, was able to make a lot of the computer electronic sounds with voice samples based on Sanskrit. And nobody knows, but some of us maybe, but the, the best thing was it gave you an idea of something to follow through. So and it felt like the film needed it, and uh, Ridley responded very well to it. Um, So using organic sounds to make well, everybody here does that, but you know, using organic sounds to make something that's not necessarily organic that was important. Also, um, I I was looking for sound stories. There was the, if anybody's seen the film, the the black goo that kind of bubbled on top of the you know of the. the sort of the beginning of man the evil the evil part of man so anyway it reminded me of pop rocks as a kid so we're sitting on the foley stage like hey buddy you got pop rocks we put it in your mouth so we actually put pop rocks and a microphone in john Cucci's mouth <laughs> to create that sound so i think what that highlights is a lot of us i think we all do is no we just pl- we just play you know it's, it's about getting inspiration to play with sound and you are talking about like what the process is. My process is just to watch it the first time as a movie. What kind of story is it? How do I react to it? Um, then look at it and go, Oh, what kind of sound might it need to increase that experience? Um, we started talking about Prometheus, but unstoppable has got a very clear example. It was okay. We have this inanimate object that's supposed to be the antagonist. So it has obviously no dialogue. How to give it a voice, a sonic voice, and make it a character of the film and make it sort of evil and scary in its own right. So um, that was sort of a sound inspiration in that particular movie. It's like, okay, what are we gonna do here?
1: What were some of the elements that you put into creating that sound?
3: Um, A couple different things. One was actually a sound from Prometheus. Truth be told, but um, it uh, a <laughs> sound that didn't get used in Prometheus. Um, it was just using um, various forms of creatures and making them uh, more metallic through all the various kind of plugins we have fun using, and just making various layers in different frequencies. So it had um, a lot of movement to it. So nothing was static, and um, from the way that they edited the film, it provided the opportunity you never sat on a shot for a long time. uh, But it gave an opportunity to sort of build and layer that as the film went on and make it more intense from the very beginning of the film, where it sounded kind of like a train, to the very end of the film, where it was a little bit more creature, overtly creature-like. And that was just responding to what you see on the film. And of course, obviously what the the filmmakers wanted, they wanted that as well, but uh, nobody can put their finger exactly on what that is. It's all about, let's come up with something. And so you start trying things and see what really works and what people respond to, everybody responds to.
1: As an audience member, the overall experience was incredible. So so Ben. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Maybe you could pick one of your shows and talk a little bit about how you found the inspiration.
4: Well, I was just thinking (coughs) Marcus, uh, obviously the script, uh, watching the reels, I mean, that's just the first. But they said ditto. Just everything they said. YouTube, uh, not really. But for, I do a lot of period things, so there's not a lot of footage on uh, pirate ships and whatnot. But you get you, you draw you draw your inspiration from other things, books. Um, so for the Pacific, they sent me to. I was in Australia for eight months, recording and cutting with the cutting room, which was a you know kind of a dream job. They let you play with tanks and machine guns, and, uh, and then go cut it for them. But um, at one point, they had uh, veterans that had been been in the war there to look at the sets and to kind of look at it, and uh, just to get to talk with them. And you know the things that they remembered, the sounds that they remembered hearing. Those are the things that you made sure were in that show, and that stuck out and. Uh, because that's what those guys went through so um, that's invaluable I think if you can uh, talk to the person that was there um, obviously what the directors want what the producers want for TV it's a little different because it's mostly a producer driven format versus a director driven format the directors often have very little to do with the way the project sounds and um, the, the overall feel of it so it's usually the executive show creator. And so he's your best friend and your best uh, source of information what they're trying to do. Um, On secretariat, we did some cool things with the horse. Uh, horse vocal, they, they in particular, I'm just going to give some exam- examples because uh, I, I, I'm not good at this. So uh, <laughs> uh, and the horse, we, uh, he, they wanted uh, the horse to sound like a machine, like a steam train, sugar, 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 you know, and that was the driving force in the races, the sound of the horse breathing. And a lot of times we'd go completely out of feet and out of everything else. That would be the only thing that was playing. So. Uh, you know, originally we tried train sounds and they hated it. So okay, check that off. We're not going to do that. You know a lot of a lot of it is it's you throw the spaghetti at the wall and you see what sticks and and uh, so in the end it was just a normal it was normal horse recordings with, with me in there, you know, you know, and you treat it and that's, uh, you know, and, and I, I tell you, I mean, these guys laugh because they know that that's, you know, a lot of it, you end up just performing yourself. A lot of times your own voice becomes part of the thing or somebody else that's, that's good at it, a Foley artist or, uh, you know, a group person that can really, uh, you know, you might hire somebody that's really good at some kind of creature thing and that becomes the source that you're building off of.
1: Did you also, for research, did you, you know, go to the track and spend time? Uh,
4: Not so much. I mean, they actually sent me to uh, uh, to the race, which was great, the uh, uh, Kentucky Derby. And if anybody, I mean, it's like, a, you're going to send me the Kentucky Derby? Oh, sucka! <laughs> so yeah so I go and of course that year it rained I mean was, I don't know that year it poured and poured and we went because they specifically wanted us to record um, old Kentucky home the, the sound of the stadium so we brought all this gear we get it and it just the night before it was a torrential downpour and we're like great and so that day it rained in the morning you know we kind of got there and said okay well maybe we can set up here and do this, and they just axed it all, and they just did a, a they just did a playback. They, they were supposed to have a band, and a singer choir out there singing, and they just axed it all, and it was just a playback over the loudspeakers. So it was kind of a waste of a trip, but hey, I got to go to the Kentucky Derby. So, um, you know, things like that happen, you can never, you know, you have to be pretty flexible and uh, fluid <laughs> come up with these things on your own. So, um, I forget where I was going with that. But.
2: <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I feel like whenever I go out to record anything, my favorite sound is rarely the thing the, I, the, I went getting, to go yeah. get. You know, it's yeah. so like you always have to, you know, you walk around with a mic and your headphones on, you go, wait,
4: what's that? Wait, what's that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was one of the things I was going to say early. Uh, I was going to point out too, is I, I do a lot of recording for my shows, um, and that's why I think they, they're special because it's a lot of original material, as much as you can get your hands on. It's really hard in TV, because they don't have the budget or the time, but you just have to do it. And um, and again, you, you, like you said, you, when, you, when you go someplace, I'm always listening to the way a place sounds, and, and maybe one particular weird sound that you, oh, that's, sorry, We I really got to remember that for if I'm ever in this situation again where I need this. and. Uh, you know, sometimes you know when I'm searching for sounds for a show, I'll come across a sound, oh, I gotta remember that, that gets a star, that's gonna, I'm gonna use that later on for that, because I just like the sound of that, and it, it might not even relate to the project that you're on, but it's um, you know it's something that you want, it's something special about that sound or that the way it was recorded, just something that makes it unique, and so that's where I get my inspiration from the sound, a lot from just sounds and reality itself, so.
1: What about the rest of you? Do you similarly? I see some nodding down at the end. Yes, Paul?
5: Yeah. um, I have, uh, it's sort of a similar thing where um, like when I start on a project, um, a lot of times I will try to source out um, a lot of different things instead of one thing at a time. And sometimes when you're going through sounds for one thing, you come across something that all of a sudden you you just think that would be a really cool sweetener for this other thing I have to do that you wouldn't have thought of looking for or wouldn't have found if you looked for it. But, you know, it's it's one of those happy accidents. And that sort of happens all the time for me.
1: Could you give us an example of
5: one of those? Oh, not offhand, but it does happen all the time. Um.
2: (laughs) Well, I think Mark you know, mentioned it earlier, but it probably happens to you guys too. No, it definitely happens to me. You make a sound that you think is going to be great for one movie and it totally doesn't work. And then it sort of filed away in the back of your head and on the next couple movies, you go, hey, what about that sound I did for that? And then there's something, maybe it's about the fact that you didn't think so damn hard about it, that it happens to be perfect for this other thing. And, you know, I, I personally love that kind of serendipity where you're like, you're not thinking so much about it. You're just sort of stumble on something or you stumble on an idea in your head I mean, that's one of the things I love about sound miners. I'll just type a, a word in like hot or angry or, you know, like some sort of descriptor and not like trying to find exactly the thing I'm looking for and then just click around randomly. And sometimes I find stuff I would have never thought of in a million years. So I don't know if you guys do that kind of thing or if I'm just crazy. Yeah, no,
3: that works great doing that works great doing stuff like that for sure. It yeah. was a cool thing. I was just going to say back in the, in the old days where you had to like, everything was on a, either a quarter inch roll or an F1 roll. You'd open up and it was all an eclectic mix of sounds. It was never like, these are all the cars or the right. doors. And while you're rolling down, getting the sound, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And you'd stop like halfway through and go, oh, I could totally use that. You know, it was the sense of discovery, which fortunately now with the way databases work and search engines, you can get a lot of that back. But there was a time period where it was so exacting that you'd kind of miss that serendipity sense of discovery which is pretty fascinating and so it's a lot of fun and makes it uh, more um, experimental too
1: so there's
6: there's a kind of cross fertilization when you're working on uh, uh several projects uh in rapid succession and you're you're familiar you know you become an expert on whatever the movie is about you know uh for the time that you're working on it and then you move on to the next or the next one and there are all of these sounds still in your head from the, the last few movies, and, and uh, that really helps.
1: H- Harry, now, you, obviously, your next film, Deepwater Horizon, is coming out in just a couple of weeks. That's a, a recent event that we've you know all been hearing about in the news for the last few years. How did you prepare for that, and where did the sound ideas come from for a film like that?
6: Well, uh, we, we uh, um, researched a lot on YouTube, <laughs> like, like everybody else alcohol. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with or without al- alcohol but uh, um uh, there was that and uh, uh just uh the um uh, the fire which uh, just came from our uh, uh, you know from our library and from recordings that we made and uh um some uh, uh some morphs that you know I would uh, take the fire and morph it with animals and and uh and mix that in uh and uh, uh and, and just a whole bunch of stuff like that oh. you know we were we were researching the sound of of uh, uh, uh deep water drilling rigs and watching a lot of the videos and and uh, um, uh that gave us a, a, an inspiration of uh, uh what it would sound like and, uh, you know, the, the director, uh, his vision was uh, uh, to make it very, uh, I don't know, spatial, very dramatic, uh, and we we took a lot of inspiration from the director as well.
1: What, what sort of things do you talk about up front with the director when you are starting a project?
6: Well, Pete Berg was... Uh, was rather peripherally involved in the sound uh, he would uh, just he would show up at the the uh, um, uh, not even the premixes he'd show up at the dub uh and so and he would just tell us when something was or wasn't working for him and we'd have to go back to ground zero at at that time Uh, so uh um yeah (laughs)
1: Um, for any of you jumping on this question, but when, um, when you're working with a director, um, ha- how do you convey an idea and how do you address it if, um, if, the, if the director maybe has a different idea up front? How do you uh, relay well, you suggestion? Well, you know, what we
6: do is, is art, but it's art in the service of somebody else's vision. So you always have to keep that in mind. Uh, you know, you might have an idea of, of what you should do, but if it doesn't jive with what the director wants you to do, then, you know, you have to throw it out right away. Um, so, uh, uh um, you, you know, uh, you have to garner from the director what it is about the scene that, uh, that excites him and, and, uh, and you have to try and find that.
2: I often ask the director, how does he want the audience to feel about something? I feel like that's one of the best things I can know going in about the work is like, you know, okay, how do you want the audience, to, you know, should they be scared of this monster or should they feel um, like they're in awe of this monster or should they feel pity for the monster, you know, whatever it is, because sometimes it's not what you'd expect. And, and that knowing that sort of what you're trying to get to is often the most useful thing to know.
3: See, that's what I was saying the first time working on a film, watch it through as a movie so you can not only understand the story but understand some of the questions to ask exactly about that, like how do you see this scene playing or how are we supposed to feel about that? So you just put it in context of
7: how it's ultimately supposed to play. And I think you can get a lot of information um, about that also from the guide tracks that we receive. I always use those as markers for points that they're, director wants us to pull out or draw out, or at least that he's thinking about, he or she is thinking about. I just had this, and I wanted to address, because Gary said something interesting during the um, keynote, which was really very cool, and I just had this experience on Hands of Stone. Um, Hands of Stone is a a biopic about the Panamanian um, fighter, Roberto Duran, and he's a Panamanian national treasure. And it's probably the first Latino movie with a wide release with uh, Latino stars that are not, you know, rapists and drug addicts and whatnot. So it's 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 profound for Latin America. It's profound for the director. And what was really interesting for me was because the same with you guys, you know, you try and kind of figure out conceptually what you're dealing with, what the story is, what the backstories are. What I always try and find the threads of the th- threads of the stories that are running through that sometimes the director doesn't even know they've put in. But in some ways, if we can pull those forward and articulate them a little bit more sonically, it, it, it draws the, the viewer closer to the to the various stories that are going on. But what confused me when I got Hands of Stone was that Jonathan, who's Venezuelan, and I had worked with him once before in a, a very, very edgy movie called Sequest, Sequestro Express uh, um, about Caracas and... Um, it was a completely different way of hearing, a completely different way of, of, of viewing because it was Latin. And he had scenes where there was like five million things going on at once and you shouldn't have been able to understand any of it. And somehow you could understand all of it. And, and when I, it took, I was on this movie for two and a half years. And when I realized close to the end of the, you know, 15th time we were on the stage or whatever, all the different versions and stuff was that, essentially what I had just participated in was creating the sonic heart of Latin America, which had not really been heard before. And I didn't know I was doing it in the middle of it because I had the same thing. Every once in a while I'd stumble and it's like totally miss a scene and and sit back and wonder why and then really listen to what the director was saying. Well, I want this and this and this. And I started to understand we were creating these tornadoes of sound that were cacophony and if you think about Latin American culture how incredible that is it's something we've not we're not used to hearing you know we have a very a very different way of hearing the world and I think that's what's truly exciting when you can really participate in in and you know I love that I want more of that I would love to work with more international filmmakers because what's cool for me also I'm Canadian so that's you know it's another thing. I mean I come from a culture that is similar to American culture, but is not American culture, and so I I find it fascinating to work to to pull forward the voices of other cultures. I mean, some are more obvious. You know, you have like Bollywood or something like that, which is a very very different way of perceiving and engaging with the world. Latin, because it's part of our culture here, is not so obvious, and and I think it just I don't know. To me, that that I find that incredibly exciting, um, and 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 it was a huge lesson for me because it really was about sitting back and really trying to understand an an entirely different set of ears, an entirely different way of perceiving the world, and then learning to channel that. And it was fun and exciting and exhilarating. I I can't wait to do it again, really.
1: And Paula, you know we're not going to let you go without
7: talking about Game of Thrones and the Dragons. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) tell us a little bit about the inspiration there.
7: Well, the dragons are cool. I mean, I I inherited the dragons when they were um, toddlers, um, and uh, one of the odd things about Game of Thrones it's a it's a it's a strange thing because I I had never had to make my sound design grow up every year. So every year, each year, it, they have to have new characteristics, as they would going from, you know, toddlers to teenagers to. Uh, grown-ups to you know airline you know jet airliners was the size of them this year and to maintain the voice the original voice the original character that you can pick out and yet make them grow and become bigger and uh, and, and do the things that they do as they become you know in, in season five as it they now were quite gigantic um, there were, Characteristics, in, in particular with Drogon, the the hot lead dragon, um, <laughs> who I tell and, and one part of the one things I do. And I don't know if you guys do this, but um, I tell stories to myself when I'm designing that often have nothing to do with the movie. It, especially designing a character like the dragons, um, they have a they need a story and they need um and, and when you create a story for yourself it's not necessarily what the, the same story the viewer is going to bring, but there are elements, there's an overarching logic to it that I think that the viewer can sense. And then the viewer will hang their own uh, interpretations on that, and it's very, very interesting. Um, so my story with Drogon is he's her hot husband from re- season one, and they have a <laughs> lover relationship. and. And then the other two dragons are like Beavis and Butthead, you know, the two of them. And <laughs> if you think about it, it's true. And I have to make this. I have to tell those stories because I have to make choices because of one, one of the amazing things about sound is it is absolutely limitless. You have to set up some kind of parameters for yourself. And so I, I that's how I do it. I, I create stories. I've got awesome stories. I don't know, I have to tell this one story. It has nothing to do with the dragons, but it was so good. Um, <laughs> That when they did that, when they, um, it was in uh, wait, season four, when they attacked the wall and uh, and the giants brought their mammoth in and they did that whole thing. Well, I had this whole thing. It was like the gay, the gay giants and they were lovers and they brought their, like, gigantic pony to the job and they're like teamsters. And they kind of came in and I had, no, seriously, I had a whole... Communication thing they were whistling and doing different things and the mammoths were moving and then when the one giant died the the other one he had to avenge his gay lover and came crashing through the gate and it was tragedy does anyone did anyone get that from watching that scene? <laughs> But there was a logic to it because you could see them communicating amongst themselves. Something was going on. It's like when you're on the street and you're out and you're shopping or whatever and you see you know, a mom with her kids or something and they're all chatting and something is going on. There's a logic to it. You, you, know, you can stand there and think of the story of what is being said amongst them, whatever. But you don't know what it is, but you know something's going on and it's interesting. And you watch and you sort of see their interactions. And so for me, when I'm doing these scenes, I, I create all this crazy shit that I entertain myself with because I'm, they keep me locked up in a dark room by myself. And so (laughs) I have to have some friends somehow. And so I make stories that's, that's, yeah.
3: (laughs) Hope somebody recorded that. (laughs)
2: Well, the panel's over. Thanks for coming.
1: (laughs) You, you can find this on YouTube, I would imagine. Yeah. Should, I, should I drop the mic now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So so let's go back to... Uh, Paul, um, you've been doing a lot of cinematics for Blizzard Entertainment the last few years, and when we spoke before the panel, you had commented that you find a lot of this work is like movies. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about where you find your inspiration for your projects?
5: Well... Um, so yeah, it's it's like doing mini movies. They're the trailers are about usually about six minutes long, and a lot of them in the past with, with uh, World of Warcraft and um, Starcraft have been. They're usually these big epic. You know, it's like a battle between sound effects and music a lot of times, and um, you know the thing about Blizzard's cinematics is the visuals are so stunning that you just that's the inspiration right there um, you don't even need a story the, the the visuals you just want to do justice to what you're looking at because they're so impressive and I don't think there's been a single one out of all the ones I've done which is probably I'm guessing somewhere between 30 and 40 or more that I didn't have a lot of fun working on. Um, one of note is the last one we just did, The Last Bastion, which actually Harry helped with. Um, and it was such a departure for what Blizzard usually does. It was the backstory of this character in uh, Overwatch, in the game Overwatch, which is a robot who has a little pet bird. And the backstory of how they met how this bird became his friend and unlike so many of the trailers this one had so much space it took place in the forest and um it was so different and it was one of the definitely one of my favorites um it was a sort of this um balance between these super peaceful scenes of um you know, just meandering through this forest cut with like a flashback of this giant battle and, you know, more peaceful stuff and then the robot accidentally blows away the forest with his giant minigun, which Harry did. And um, um, just creating that sense of space was, it was a lot of fun. And the other thing about it, there was no dialogue. In this whole thing, Um, it all came from the story of this, uh, of Bastion, this um, robot. And there was, it turned out there was just a lot of emotion in this story. And a lot of it came from things like his servos. Like we really were careful about, um, you know, when he was sad, having these servos that the pitch of them sounded sad. And when he was, he was like, he was discovering the world. So when something surprised him or excited him, you know, his movement, the servos would reflect that. And um, uh, just the cinematic itself and the story in that case was really inspiring to work on. Um, And the fans really reacted to that one a lot more than some of the big epic, you know, impressive pieces.
1: Um, as a journalist, we all get some writer's block sometimes. Do you ever get sound block? And if so, what do you do to find your inspiration?
2: Hell yes.
7: <laughs> right? <laughs>
2: um, like
7: the, the first, the first, the, the scariest moment is sitting in front of your Pro Tools screen with a new session going, oh my God. Yeah,
6: yeah. There, there's yeah. Almost where do I no, start? Yeah, blank yeah, canvas yeah, syndrome. Yeah, yeah, there's almost no wrong way to start. I mean, you put a sound to the picture and if it's the wrong sound, then you can ask yourself, why is that the wrong sound? What should it be? Yeah, I mean, the most useful thing is like as fast as
2: possible, get something in there, even if it sucks, because then at least you can say it sucks and figure out why. I mean, the only thing that I ever do that's maybe weird, and maybe you guys do it too, is I'll mute everything and just watch it and try to imagine it in my head. And that's often the, that's actually the easiest part is like I can hear it in my head and then you have to figure out how to do it. You know, how do, how do I take what's up here and then get it on the screen, get it on the on, in the tracks? Um, and, you know, a lot maybe it's like literally making sounds with my mouth, uh, you know, and trying to, like, just hear it in my head first uh, is the only way other than, like Harry said, just throwing shit at it. Uh, that's the only way I can ever just, you know, crack the, the code.
3: Yeah, I can say my version's pretty close. I would just uh, turn everything off but the dialogue and the picture and just watch it that way and just take all the other sound or music, whatever else they put in there and just not, so I don't acknowledge it, you know, so I can actually think clearly.
7: It helps. I'm not saying what I do.
2: (laughs) We know what you do.
7: (laughs) (laughs) She tells a little
2: story.
4: (laughs) (laughs) This guy, that guy.
7: Well, it's true. I mean, we do have to crawl in that world. And, and I think, actually, it's the hardest thing. Um, you know, I, we've been talking about this, but I moved to the desert a couple of years ago because I, I have to live in the world that I'm working on. And, it's, it, and because a lot of my work, anyway, um, I, I tend to get lots of horror stuff or intense stuff. It's, it's an intense life. You're sitting in a room being bombarded by however many speakers you have in your room all day long in a world that you may not want to live in. But you have to because that's part of the beauty of it. And the, the other thing that I always forget is, you know, we were talking about the serendipity, you know, to remember that that always happens. And, and those moments always happen. But, you know, I always think at the beginning, oh my God, what if that doesn't happen and I don't know what I'm going to do? I will say, one thing I noticed, and this is, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but when I was earlier on in my career, the effort it took to get from what was in my head to spit that out was so long, and I think it's an interesting thing, I was thinking about it the other day, because I think if you have a hard time doing that, it's, it's the thing we all must strive for, because I think what happens is if you do something, and you've worked very hard, but that the effort to get from here to there is, is, uh, is difficult, and maybe in the beginnings of your career you don't f- quite get there, having a director say no, I don't like that is probably the hardest thing, because then you have to go back and figure it out again. And I think what I've noticed over the course of doing this, well, I turned 85 today, so it's been a long (laughs) time. (laughs) Um, Now, for the course of doing this in my career, one thing I'm really happy about is that um, the insanely useless gigantic database of sounds in my head plus all the things I've done have come to a place where the space between here and what comes out is becoming uh, smaller, and it's easier for me to get that place, so I can tap dance faster. When, if I'm wrong and I've barked up the wrong tree, so to speak, and I have to shift gears, that used to be the most terrifying thing, and now it's not because it's it's I know that I'll find my way again, and I think that that is probably a sound designer's the hardest thing because it's it's very very subjective, and it's very hard to get to get from what's in your head and what you hear and the beauty of that and how lush and awesome that is to actually be able to find those sounds or make those sounds to create that space that you imagine. And that has always been my biggest uphill battle. Harry, you're Uh, nodding, go ahead. I
6: I tend to uh, 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 approach things in such a way that uh, there's a lot of gestural input, a lot of input from uh, me personally into the sound. So I I make, uh, I use samplers a lot uh, and uh, samplers that you can uh, tie to various um, you know, uh, parameters like sliders and wheels and pedals and stuff. And uh, I use vocoders, I use a, a morph plugin. Uh, and so uh, a lot of times you're shaping the sound with your mouth or whatever, and I turn on the recorder and I just let it run. And you can kind of find your way to something interesting and and, uh, and you only have to do it once. And you only have to get the sound uh, uh, good or or reasonably close, you know, once because you're recording it. So. Uh, uh, that's what I do.
5: So sure. for those of us who are not in post, I do music playback, and I'm on set. Um, it,
3: it, I kind of got it a little bit, but can you can you explain the relationship between the sound designer, uh, the dialogue, music, effects, mixers,
7: and the composer, and the hierarchy, and you know, how all that goes together? How hmm. yeah. long <laughs> do we have? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a maybe different. maybe we can do an abridged answer. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's changing. I mean, it's always changing and it's always it depends on the project and, you know, the composer might be the picture editor. Um, but, <laughs> for example. Uh, but, you know, these days it's basically, uh, you know, in its most pure form, form. It would be, there's a supervising sound editor and usually a couple mixers. There's usually a dialogue mixer that also does the music and then an effects mixer that does the Foley as well. Um, and the supervising sound editor will often work with a sound designer or two, uh, to create the sounds for the film. And then a group of dialogue editors, sound effects, editors, foley editors to put together the track. Now where it starts to blur the line is that a lot of times these days, the supervisor is also the sound designer or at least one of the sound designers. And then often is also doing some of the mixing, uh, And that could be either on the sound effects side or the dialogue side. It's often on the sound effects side. Um, But the lines are blurring a lot now because the technology allows it. And crews have gotten smaller because, again, of the technology. Um, And these days it's a lot easier to do work in the very beginning of the project that maintains all the way to the end of the project because of things like Pro Tools. So you you can mix the sound once and never have to mix it again in theory. Um, if you know well, as long as no one has a note about it uh, but you know that's how things have evolved that's the sort of the state of the art right now is that it's sort of not hard and fast anymore like it, it could be any number
3: of different ways uh, the, I mean the only thing I would
0: I'll go for it
1: you know what, it, it I'm sorry, we have a lot of other questions, so if we, we can stick to music. one question per person, yeah. that would be great. Um, I'm sorry, we had a gentleman in the second row. Uh, yeah.
7: Gotcha. Thanks,
8: um, thanks for, uh, to all of you for speaking. It's uh, been a pleasure to hear you all. Um, my question is, I think, uh, one of the most terrifying things is you guys touched on it. When you're sitting and you you kind of mute everything and you're trying to figure out what is the sound for this or what is the emotion they're going for. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, when you hear those sounds in your head and you've got them on the screen and you've dedicated a lot of time and you've kind of babied and had this sound like form and grow up in front of you and once it's like all mature and ready to send out, it can be the most terrifying thing because you're like, what if the director hates this because I've just dedicated all my time and my mind is focused on this idea now how the hell am I going to come up with something other than this so if you know has there been a time when a director is when you've been really excited about a sound and you've been like oh man this is like exactly what I wanted and then the director's like no way and how it's, do you start over
7: <laughs> it's why I, I don't mix much because if uh-huh. I spend three days on a sound, I'm going to hear it, and that's it. So, so I mean... Uh, I can't be trusted. No, it's, it's very hard. I it's, it's,
3: it can't be trusted. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Okay, I, I would just Harry, say, don't be ahead. too precious about... If you're, if you're too precious about your work, you're going to be disappointed. And yeah, there's no room Paul, for ego. I know. Well, speaking of what Apollo said, trying to, or Harry, a lot of people said, just try to get something out fast. The faster you work, I think the less precious you are about it and work simply, and build up to something that's more complex, and explore your ideas in progress with the filmmakers. So you don't go 180 degrees, you get about 45 degrees, and get an idea, then you might redirect it a little bit. So, and, and that's the nice thing about the way it works for, I think, all of us now is it's very collaborative throughout the process. You don't show up at the end and go, look what I've done. It's, it's uh, involvement throughout, which is fantastic as it's all evolved. And to speak to the job description, I just want to say that all the jobs are always going to be there. It's just some people do more than one of them. Yeah. You know?
6: okay. so.
1: And Harry, I think you had another thought you wanted to add.
6: I was going to say uh, it took me a long time to get past the point. Uh, of being so connected to my work that you know when the, the director or somebody would say no that's not it you know you'd feel crushed and stuff uh, to the point where um you know if, if I spend a bunch of time on a sound and they don't like it I just go okay on to the next so you you just have to get past the the personal involvement and, and that's just part of the job
0: well okay,
7: and like, and like you said earlier that uh, you know, we are artists. And, and you know, I struggle with that, I'm not, you know, I made it that as a joke. I mean, I think we all have those points in our career when you work very hard on something and are disappointed if it's not you know, received in the way that you hope. Um, my way of doing that is I'm also, you know, I shift off and, and try to pursue my own work because uh, uh, fundamentally we are artists in the service of someone else's vision. I, th- I thought that was brilliantly put. It's something you always have to remember and it isn't a personal thing, but if you are so compelled to make something beautiful, to make a sound sculpture that you like, another strategy is to find another way where you are in complete control of what you're doing and it it balances out so you don't, because, if you're an artist that are always in service of another artist, it's it's hard, you know. And yes, you've got to chew on your ego and, and swallow it many times. It, it is part of the job. It's it's a, it's one of the most difficult, I think, okay. if you are truly dedicated to the artwork that you're making. I mean, I think it's just, it's difficult. And as sound designers, I also want to point out one of the things. We still
1: have a few more questions in okay. the audience. So,
7: Oh, the only thing okay. I wanted to say is that there's something, I think that sound design is something that is actually in our industry relatively new term. And I think it's still kind of somewhat, I mean, we understand it to a point, but a lot of people don't. And I think I, what I advocate for, and I, I say this all the time, is that I hope that you know people understand that our job and what we do is the same as, basically the same as what a composer does. I mean, and but we are often not afforded the same amount of sacred space to, to work on that stuff. And I think it's because of what is expected of us, because of what is being asked of us more and more, it is something that, really needs to be addressed by producers and, and, and others to, to inform themselves about what it is that we do.
1: Okay. okay, we're gonna try to get a few more quick questions in, so go ahead. Hello,
2: my name's Howard Jones. Um, now things have gone past 5.1, and that you can put dragons in the ceiling. Are you finding the directors and the uh, um, producers have, have jumped on board? Do they understand that they can do this now? or do you have to really train them on 7-1 immersive we, we, audio? We
6: have to retrain ourselves, uh, yeah. let alone the director. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, there are, are various philosophies behind using an immersive room. Like uh, uh, there are times where it's completely appropriate to take the theater and turn it into a, a theme park ride. You know, if the picture supports it and you, you can have spaceships moving through the theater. But what if it's uh, a, some other kind of a film with a, a lot of drama? So you can use the space in a more uh, uh, subtle way and, and uh, make immersive ambiences and put the music kind of all over the place. And, and uh, so it depends on the director and, and, and it depends on us. And, and uh, uh, we're, we're all just finding our
5: way.
1: Paul, you're nodding, do you want to add to that?
5: Oh, um, well, Harry's got my mic. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, uh, a couple of years ago, we—I'm not going to say we fought, but we had to like make the point of we wanted to start doing our stuff in Atmos, and um, we got the um, the higher ups to let us start mixing in Atmos up at Skywalker, and so I'd say we've done like five or six of the cinematics up there, and. Um, in some cases, it's dramatic. You know, if there's stuff flying over your head and going all over the place, it's really cool. There's, uh, like Harry was saying, sometimes it's just creating space. And as dense as some of the blizzard stuff is, that really in Atmos makes a big difference because you'll have the music. You just, you just pull the music back into the room a little bit and have the effects sort of on the screen and around you and um, Maybe put the music a little bit above you, and all of a sudden there's a clarity that just you couldn't get before. Of course, then you have to fold it down to five one in stereo, and you lose a lot of that. But still, it's uh, it's it's fun. And the directors, the first time we did it, they were very impressed and saw the um, the reason for doing it. So that was nice. And
1: we have one more question. I think go ahead.
5: What when we do? Well, I have and harry has this to the local renderer i think you we're probably all using the local renderer and um, yeah so i'll make object tracks for certain things that i want to i mean explain offer. the local renderer oh it's the uh it's the uh the the plugins for pro tools that allow you to do atmos as long as you have like i just have four speakers above me i have a 7.1.4 wow. system and allows you to um you know to actually create your stuff in Atmos, and then when you take it to the mix room, they have the the RMU unit that allows you to actually master it, and the mixer, uh, like Gary Summers mixed our last bastion thing, he did an amazing job, and that didn't have that many opportunities, but the mix in Atmos just sounded beautiful, just sounded beautiful.
1: Okay, we have another question by Tom.
6: Hi, my name is Lenny Jones. Uh, other than Pro Tools, is there one certain tool that you guys cannot live without that you have to have for every sh- every shoot?
2: Uh, for me, it's probably Pitch and Time. It's just a you know, it's just a, it's a pretty great plugin. It it lets me do a lot of stuff that I used to do on a sampler, like dynamic pitch shifting and that sort of thing. Um, it's kind of like the one thing if I had to pick one plugin besides what came with Pro Tools, that's probably the one I'd pick. It's
6: like, I, I'm, a, I'm a plug-in junkie, but um, a, as far as that, I, there's a sampler called Contact, yeah. which uh, I, you know, I, I uh, came up doing sound effects on a Synclavier, which is a, a keyboard connected to a, a refrigerator-sized rack of equipment. <laughs> and uh, you know, and it, it, it only hold a certain amount of sound, but y- you were working with it in such a way that you felt like you were holding the sound in your hands. So uh, contact approaches that level for me um, when I use it. But also, the, uh, something I've been playing with recently as an alternative to Pro Tools is uh, Reaper. It's a, another workstation. And I, I won't be surprised uh, you know, if, uh, uh, if DigiDesign uh, uh, fades in, in, pr- in future years or whatever. So, so uh, uh, the platform is constantly changing out from under us. Okay.
1: Last question. Hi, my name
6: is Robert Margolev and I'm mixing currently in
4: 12.1 headphones surround, uh, mixing music where the music occupies the same space as the listener. And uh, I wonder now that we're moving toward virtual reality, which involves immersive audio and headphones and uh, close-up visuals, of the cigar box strapped to the front of your face, which I don't particularly like, but nonetheless we're emerging into a different reality. And sound design, I think, is a very, very important part of that space and how it moves in that space. And I wonder how directors and how you guys are going to start to deal with it. Because in VR, for example, the director is like off the scene because everything's from your point of view. So storytelling is going to take a very different turn. And I'm wondering how you guys are thinking about storytelling for VR. What, what's different about it for you?
2: I think uh, the biggest difference I've seen between VR and narrative film is that uh, VR excels at making you feel like you're there and making you making things feel real uh, and almost, you know, in a visceral way makes you like physically feel things. Um, But it's not so great at making you feel emotions the way that film is so good at Um, So I think that's a bit of the trade-off and it's been uh, an interesting thing. We're we're doing this film called Passengers here across uh, in the Novak theater and we've been designing sounds for it for weeks and weeks at this point and we're giving our sounds working with the VR team. We're taking the same sounds that are in the film and putting them in the VR world and they feel much more real like wow these sounds we made are really cool. They feel like you know, that's that real, that's that thing. We can, you know, reach out and touch it. It makes the sounds, like, come alive in a different way. But this fix whole experience will never get you feeling the same way. So I think that's going to be the challenge for VR, is how do you get the best of thing, best of what VR does, which is that tangible sense of physicality, and then... Maybe music is part of the answer. It'd be interesting to think about how can we do this from a sound point of view, especially when we don't have control over the mix because that's often one of the tools that we use to make things abstracted a bit more and make you draw into the film in an emotional way rather than in an intellectual way. Um, so I think that'll be the challenge. I'm not saying I know the answer yet, but I think it will be interesting as, as it evolves as a, as a medium, how can we make it uh, more emotionally impactful? Right. I wish we had more time, but uh, it seems like our time has run out. But I personally, on behalf of Sony and the Motion Picture Sound Editors, want to thank Carolyn and each one of these panelists. I mean, world-renowned talent for making this happen today.
0: Thanks for tuning in and listening to this exclusive presentation from the 2016 Mix Magazine Sound for Film event. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, for sponsoring this podcast series, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com.